1: I had to go about it
2: This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins together again. Uh, not quite together at last because we were together last week, but we've been not together a lot over the last few weeks, uh, although we're going to be together a whole lot over the next few weeks. I've been doing a lot of T20 World Cup planning, getting excited for that. Plenty to go around on the show today. Uh, running out of the non-strike is something that you spoke about on The Daily Show, but obviously you and I have to talk about because it's one of our favourite subjects, India finishing off that series against England's women with a clean sweep. We've got the Australians playing over in India, at T20 World Cup preparation, what's going on with the Strauss recommendations for the county championship, the Australian season getting started with the domestic competition. So I suppose this is, because we're talking about the last bit of the English season, this is probably still season 12 and then maybe next week we'll flip into season 13. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Hello, Jeff. It's the last week of the championship Ship. We're recording on the twenty-seventh of September. I've just been at Old Trafford, so day two there between Surrey and Lancashire, or Lancashire and Surrey, I should say. To put it in some context, so I'm in my hotel room, kind of exhausted in a good way, having been on commentary for the last eight days in a row or something like that, jumping between the England India women's one day as the Rachel Hayho Flint trophy, Surrey, Yorkshire which was the game I was doing at the Oval last week and now over to Manchester after that. So can't stop, won't stop on that front. But yeah, I think that I still feel like I'm in English season. I I know that there have been games in Australia over the weekend and we'll talk about those a wee bit. But yeah, it feels like I'm still kind of English-centric until Mm -hmm. October and then we will click over. And the other point here, of course, is that we can talk about it like it's cricket season because footy season's over Um, and Mm. it was over for you. I mean, you didn't get back to Melbourne. I know you and Brat spoke about this a little bit on story time but Geelong winning another flag um, and doing it so comprehensively and doing it in such a chilled way for you I got up at five in the morning to watch it before the game at Lords on on Saturday and you know right. I, I've been to a lot of grand finals well in the blessed position where Hawthorne have been in a lot of grand finals and we, I know that we in 14 and 15 were so far ahead at kind of mm. in the third term that we knew we couldn't lose but never have I been to a grand final where I knew it was pretty much all over it quarter time, which is the experience that maybe not completely over, but you would have known yeah. when the first bell rang at quarter time that it was so improbable that you were going to lose that you could really lap it up, kind of like it was in 2007.
2: Yes. Although in 2007, I was so nervous because all I had seen in my life was Geelong lose grand finals. <laughs> um, and so I remember that well. I was sitting with my dad in the ground and when it was it was half time, I think Cam Mooney kicked the goal just before halftime and it was about 50 points up. And right. He sort of looked at me and I said, "Don't say anything. Don't say a <laughs> word. We're not. No. We do not tempt fate here." And then once it was just after uh, three quarter time when I think it went to about ninety points, I turned to him and said, "I think we've got this one." This time was much different. It did feel like just the way that the runner play went in the first quarter yeah. um, and the the dominance. You know, the Tom Hawkins ruck goals, the, mm-hmm. the way the ball was moving. I thought. I feel pretty comfortable here. I feel... And that was a very rare experience. I've always been... One of the things I like about cricket is that I don't care who wins and and watching football is horrible. I I really don't enjoy it necessarily because I am so invested in in the result. It's the only sport, I think, where I really care about the result. So, you know, commiserations to our Swans listeners as well. I know there are a bunch of them out there who don't necessarily want to hear us um, bang on about how great Geelong was in the grand final. But, look, it happens. Uh, I've uh, been on more than my share of losing grand final days so I, I think we're allowed to enjoy the ones where it goes the other way.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think those Hawkins goals automatically Qualifies like great grand final moments in the first turn, mm. uh, the way they kicked those and from a Hawthorne perspective, seeing Isaac Smith play so well, I'm more magnanimous about these matters the older I get. I think when I was younger, yep. that would have probably shipped me quite a lot seeing Isaac go away, but we'll always have that moment uh, in the third quarter of the 2015 grand final. I, it's funny, isn't it? I'm mm-hmm. confusing which one's which, but and also the fact that it's probably the last day grand final will be special. Uh, I know that you know we're sort of lesser people for wanting it to stay as a day game, and the AFL don't mm. give a fuck what I think because I'm a footy lifer, uh, and the broadcasters yep. either. That, I mean, I'm irrelevant in this, and people like me broadly are irrelevant in this conversation because it doesn't matter whether they play it at it, you know, nine in the evening or on the moon or whatever it is. I'll be I'll be tuned mm. in because I'm a I'm a footy lifer, and we aren't you know, we're going to watch the betting ads anyway, right? So it doesn't really matter what what we think. Yeah. But And I do feel that there is
2: some similarities It with feels that. a bit like The 100, though, you know, as in, oh, this isn't for you. Yeah. You know, this is this. Yeah. this, this well, and, I was going to add. That, that I, does bug me.
0: Well, it, it, I mean, I was going to say it's analogous to how some people will feel about the, the Strauss report recommendations, which we'll, we'll talk to in a bit of depth later on. But, yeah, it is interesting that as proper sort of dyed-in-the-wool, wool will do anything to support our clubs, that you know, mm. you get kind of typecast as being a certain type of person, footy fan, whatever. And I do see sure. some similarities with that, and and county yeah. members at the moment. Um, even if I probably fall occasionally, despite how much I love the county game, on the other side of the debate with some of my friends who have been county lifers. So yeah, it's um, mm. it's something I've been mindful of through the course of the last week since that review came down. That some of the feelings that I have towards footy uh, are the feelings yep. that they have towards the the championship as it's been, you know, forever as as far as they're concerned and as far as most people are concerned over here.
2: It does puzzle me though that in, in a week where, you know, they cracked the 100,000 mark in attendance for the first time in decades at the MCG, that people can look at, the ratings and say, oh, the ratings were lower than the last couple of years, therefore not enough people are watching the game. I mean, that seems... Well, and
0: also, and, 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 and also the fact that people are watching it communally, right? For the last two grand yes. finals, you needed to watch the grand final up. in your own home because of lockdown. So it's a, it's a straw man argument.
2: It's been a, a week with all sorts of emotional intensity around sport, you know, and... Uh, jo- <laughs> The Geelong captain Joel Selwood in tears after kicking that goal late yeah. in the fourth quarter and leading his team to the premiership for the first time. He'd won three as, as a player in the ranks and, and the only Geelong player to ever win four. And and then a sort of mirror of that at Lords with Jualang Goswami yeah. bowing out uh, of international cricket for India, the extraordinary career that she's had. i I listened back to the daily show that you and Daniel recorded, you know, the 10,000 deliveries.
0: In a way, way I wish you didn't. It was such a ramble, but I think we kind of got somewhere by the end.
2: Yeah, but, you know, the number of, um, you know, the Indian players who were in tears... Throughout and yeah. Yeah, at the beginning, at the end, I mean, it, it's it's era-defining stuff when a player like that, who's been around for 20 years in that side um, and is still performing at that level, you know, gives it away. A player who's still having an influence on that match and on that result and, and on that series clean sweep for India, which is a huge achievement for them, given how often they've come to England and underachieved a bit. They've often flattered to deceive, or they've they played really well in a couple of games and then slipped away. And and this mm. was a series where they were ruthless. And they made sure that they won time after time.
0: Yeah, I think it'll be like genuinely defining uh, this. I think it'll be a reference point. You know, like with great teams, you look back at where it started. Often with the England yeah. men's white ball team, it's the series after the World Cup in 2015 when they were able to, under the tutelage of Paul Farbrace. People often forget that it was the assistant coach that was there before um, Bayless became the full-time right. coach. But you know that they sort of turned on a dime and suddenly were able to hit 400 in innings after being so inept. And, well, inept's probably the wrong word because they were number one in the one-day rankings ahead of that World Cup. You know, it's a really odd story, that England one-day team. But the point, the overarching point is that um, mm. that was always used as the, the the bit they looked back on when they won the World Cup in 19, what they were doing in 15. Well, under Harman Preet Kaur, and it was no sure thing that she was going to be captain either. Like, you know, yeah. it was a big... Case for Schmidty Mandana to become captain of that team on the basis that Mandana is the younger of the two. Harman Preet will be, I think, 36 or 37, probably 36 when the World Cup's played in India in 2025. But maybe because it's a three-year gap and not a four-year gap, they're like, no, no, we can go with Harman. And Mike Middy, the the vice-captain. And Harman Preet clearly just loves the responsibility. Going into the the final game on Saturday at Lords, her average when captain was 116. Mm. And that's inflated by a century she hit when she was acting captain in in 2013. But the point stands. The way she batted at Canterbury, the way she led the side, the emotional way that she led the side, like with respect to Goswami, but also Mm. how how fucking fierce she is. And you know that, Jeff. You've watched enough of Harman Preet. And we've been critical of her at times for being kind of almost too serious and at the expense of her her batting. But yeah, this agrees with her being the captain of this particular team at this particular time. And she's playing her best cricket. The 70-odd not out at Hove in the first game. I mean, complete calm, sea of calm stuff. And then the explosion at Canterbury after reaching 100, hitting 43 runs from the next 10 balls she faced. And sure, it wasn't a full-strength England team. They didn't have Heather Knight, Nat Siver, Catherine Brunt, and they had Amy Jones captaining, who never could have expected that role, and all of that, a couple of younger players in as well, like Freya Kemp, who were sure. perhaps a bit overwhelmed by bowling to Harman Preet right at the very end. But yeah, that that, that was quite something. And you know, while we're talking about the emotional stuff, I, I shouldn't breeze over Surrey winning the county championship on Thursday, and I was calling that with Daniel uh, when it happened, and Daniel had a glass of champagne there, and you know, you know how much Daniel loves Surrey. Uh, so it's uh it's that time of the year.
2: Mm. mm. Uh, remarkably it, a dense sort of week of of things happening and I, I think I think with Mandana it's like you you don't want to mess with what's happening. Like she's playing so brilliantly. She's yeah. so precious, you know, she's a she's a bird of paradise as a <laughs> batter. She's extravagant and colorful and and wonderful and you know as a As Red said of Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, uh, some birds are not meant to be caged, their feathers are just too bright. Uh, You you don't want to necessarily burden her with anything. You want to let her just be what she is. Um, And so if Harman Preet can, can be the one to shoulder that and sort of take one for the team, literally, then that should be something that benefits India rather than hinders them.
0: Yeah, especially when they're losing Goswami as well. Like They've been sort of totemic yeah. figures. Harman Preet and, uh, and Madali played 201 one-day internationals together. How's this for a fact? I kind of stumbled upon it on commentary on the first day. Goswami never played a one-day international until last week without Madali in the team. And that is yeah. wild. I made their – I mean, yeah. uh, Goswami made her debut in January 2002. And, mm. you know, for 20 years uninterrupted, every one day that she played, Madali was by her side. Mm. So, you know, those two moving on is massive. And, yeah, we, we talked mm. on The Daily Show about the, the huddle before and, and the photographs they were taking and – of course, there was a significant moment that ended that game. But even in the build-up to that, like it was a great day at Lord's. 15,000 people there. Kate Cross taking all those wickets at the start, including Harman Preet yep. after what she did in the in the previous game. Then Deepti Sharma making a really impressive half-century. Then Renuka Singh Thakur taking four wickets with their big booming in-swingers mm. to give them a chance of defending 169 in the first place. And then... As we know, Charlie Dean comes together with Freya Davies after the top order misfired and Davies batting at 11 and and Charlie Dean is a genuine all-rounder now. And then we go into um, the discourse, so to speak.
2: Mm, The discourse. Well, I I think we can do our our own version of it, which is a bit less loaded. Mm, Um, People who've listened to the show will know that in principle we're we're in favour of running out the non-striker, that it's a thing you should be allowed to do and you shouldn't be pilloried for it. Um, It felt really significant, though, having a big cricket country doing it against another big cricket country. You know, it wasn't happening at associate level. It wasn't happening with sort of a team that hasn't been playing cricket for that long and maybe has a different view of it. The big countries have been shy about doing it. And it's not like they've never done it. You know, you talked about you and Chatfield for New Zealand Mm. um, doing it decades ago. There have been other examples over the journey, but not many of them. But in the modern environment, a big headline team doing it in a headline series and as the 10th wicket to fall, you know, something that decides a match. That felt significant in terms of... Maybe over time, moving this on so that there's less ingrained resistance to it. The ingrained resistance is most prevalent amongst English players. It's always England cricketers hopping on Twitter whenever this happens anywhere, saying, "Oh, shaking my head. Oh, wouldn't want to. Oh, wouldn't want to do this in a match." Um, it seems to be mostly England against it. Although the other sort of baked-in countries are pretty reluctant to um, put their heads into the lion's mouth as well.
0: Yeah, I think Australian cricketers too. Look, it's always the same, isn't it? It, it requires you to think about it and go through it in great detail before kind of becoming a convert. But yeah, you're right about the fact that it was Lords as well. It was the 10th wicket. It was a big day. You know, that celebration of Jilan Goswami and the fact that England mm-hmm. hadn't played a game there for five years. There was a lot of moving parts. And of course, as Daniel pointed out in The Daily Show, that has no relationship to the discreet interaction that's being observed by, in that case, Martin Saggers and then upstairs Mike Burns, the third mm-hmm. umpire. Look, the other element that we probably didn't touch on the other day is that it was clearly premeditated Yep. By that I mean you can see all the different slow-mo shots now with, with Harmon and, and, and Like They knew they were going to do that to win the game. They knew that it was pretty much going to happen, that ball, and they were going to win because
2: yeah. Dina Because being, they knew that she'd been out of her crease almost every delivery.
0: That's right, which has been proven on Twitter. Whether that's helpful or not, look, I'm, I don't want to get into the weeds on, on Twitter threads or, or whatever, but I think we know in hindsight that both India knew that she was inadvertently, probably inadvertently, stealing a, stealing a march um, at the non-striker's and Charlie Dean, this is. And they knew that they could pull this off. So there was no ambiguity around the act as it was mm. taking place. So, yeah, but yeah, I, I reckon this is where the conversation might get a little bit confusing in the days and, and weeks to come. There are two parts to this I've, I've had a chance to think about more and more. If it's premeditated to the point where you are faking your bowling action, mm-hmm. that I think starts to creep into the territory of where the law at the moment might not be satisfactory because the expected release of the ball, which I was big on the other night when I was talking about it with Daniel in 41.16.7, which talks about the expected release of the ball. I genuinely believe that Dean is protected by that, but I also believe that Dean should be run out for sloppiness. I think Mm. both things are true simultaneously. So how do you resolve that? Probably by tweaking the law and the only credible – thing I've seen is you just say it has to be when the ball leaves the hand get rid of expected release which is a little yep. bit subjective Like your definition of expected release and mine could radically could differ radically And we've sure. seen that on Twitter people have been debating this and you know some say it's when the front foot touches down mm-hmm. we have been taught on this podcast by Fraser Stewart from the MCC who came on and spent an hour with us in 2019 when we did our man special all those years ago yep. that it's when the arm is at the vertical point but his sure. arm never goes up there so it makes it even more difficult in- in this scenario. So yeah, I think that they might need to consider a tweak because if we're going to see more and more of it, that mm. grey area, that subjectivity will be called upon for central umpires and third umpires. And in most yeah. games of cricket, there is no third umpire to do a frame by frame either. Sure.
2: But it's also pretty easy. I mean, the standing umpire should have been able to make a ruling on that. You know, It was, it was very obvious. It was very clear. And I think the standing umpire just punted it upstairs so as not to have to have the responsibility of making the call.
0: Yeah, it looks like Martin Saggers said to the third umpire that... Because he was going to make the dead ball. You know, you, kind of, mm. you can kind of see Saggers doing the dead ball thinking, well, that, that's just they're going to go back to there. He didn't really... It took him a second to work out and catch up with what was happening. Mm. Yeah, and it meant that, as I understand it, Mike Burns wasn't commissioned with determining the expected release, only the right. only the line, which is where I had a bit of confusion when when first recording the podcast in, in, the, in the aftermath of what had happened. We hit mm. record like... Twenty minutes after it happened, you know, you know how sure, this is yeah. at the end of the day's play. So yeah, let it when the balls let go. I saw Shield Berry had an alternative view about when the load up starts. But even that's subjective. One person's load yeah. up starts at one point, and, and thus giving the batter more room sure. to back up if they if they see fit to do so. But I think the only objective measure would be ball leaving hand. And if you want to sit there and do windmills with your arm like this over and over and over again, yeah. and don't let the ball go, and well, okay, <laughs> it'll it'll be ridiculous. Yep. But at least it, the onus will be on the non-striker to watch the hand. Sure, you kind of transfer responsibility back onto the non-striker, then, don't you? They have to watch the ball come out of the hand. Sure, they can't be watching the batter's end. And Coley does that. Williamson does that. Mm-hmm. Even a game I was doing. T- Today, where Tom Bailey and Jordan Clark, who are old teammates at length, Bailey ran up and pretended to mancad Clark. And they had a good laugh about it. It was. Very um, nice to be on comms when that happened, actually. Mm. But the next ball, Clark was watching the ball come out of the hand. Yeah. And soon enough, they all will be. But yeah,
2: well, I, I wonder whether a tweak might be required. So was Freya Davies. She was watching the ball come out of the hand too. She watched, And Charlie Dean yep. wasn't. So, in terms of, like, I think the terminology just confuses people because they don't understand what it means. The expected release doesn't mean the timing, it doesn't mean the point at which the bowlers arrived at the crease and then you think they would have bowled. And that's what Charlie Dean was going on, was the timing of the bowler arriving at the crease is yeah. it's the point in the action when you would expect them to release the ball and that's when their arm Correct. is at the vertical or just past the vertical you know I mean Jasper Boomer doesn't release the ball until well past the vertical he goes past the vertical and then the ball comes out of the hand true so different bowlers have different release points but with the arm at a point where the ball could be released effectively is what that means uh, and so as you mentioned on the show a lot of spinners will come up and stop and then release the ball. They'll do that as a, as a way to throw off the timing of the batter, that kind of thing. They're allowed to do that. As a batter, you need to be watching them to see when their arm has come up to the expected release point. And so that's the thing that confuses people. They don't understand what expected means. They think expected means assumption, if you can assume that the ball would have been bowled. It's not that. It's that you need to be watching the bowler and if it comes up to that release point and then they don't release the ball and their arm keeps going over and then they turn back to the stumps, that's not out. But, mm. I mean, Tea doesn't even start getting her arm up. And not I listened <laughs> to the bit, you know, you talked about her sometimes not bowling the ball at all and that kind of thing and how she's allowed to do that, and, and that's fine and within the rules as well. But when you look at that, so I've gone back and watched that delivery umpteen times, the toe of Charlie Dean's bat is out of the ground before Deepti's front foot has even hit the ground. It, her front foot is just off yep. the ground in the delivery stride. So, And, and her arm is still down where it, where it could have been. If Charlie Dean had been in her ground at that point, Deepti could still have bowled that ball. It's not like she pulled out of bowling the ball altogether. She goes in to bowl the ball and then has to stop because she has to turn to get back to the stumps. So a bowler who's gone past the stumps has to stop in the delivery stride in order to go back. And so people try to frame that as that's trickery, that's being sneaky, that's trying to fool the batter. It's not. It's that you have to go back to the stumps if you want to knock the bails off. And by the time the bails mm-hmm. come off Charlie Dean's two metres down the crease and still looking at the striker. She's still not even looking back. She's got no idea and no concern about what's happening at the striker's end. So I have zero problems with what Deep Tishama did. I, I know that she came into bowl knowing that she wasn't going to bowl, but she could have bowled at that point. She was still in a position to bowl the ball at the point that the non-striker leaves the crease. So, you know, that's hard to see when you're watching from the camera behind the stumps, but if you watch the side on and you pause it frame by frame, you can see that's the case. And you know that India know that she'll be out of her crease because she'd done it 70-plus times throughout the innings. Peter you know, Peter Delapena did a great thread on this with all of the screen caps of every delivery. And it's there. I mean, the, the evidence is clearly there. They knew it was happening all day. They knew she was taking the piss. She probably didn't mean to. She was probably being dozy. But she's a lot further down the crease when she's trying to pinch a single with the lower order on strike than she was when she was batting with specialist players on strike.
0: Yeah, I've got a bit of a theory that I've been working on about backing up as well. I, I think when I was a kid growing up, the emphasis was on really taking off as a ball was being bowled. Yeah. I think over here, walking in with the bowl is more of a thing. So you're just conditioned to walking because obviously backing up is good batting, right? Like there's nothing wrong with backing up. You
2: want to be moving because it helps you get moving faster.
0: You want, you you want to, that's right. You want to be moving. But I I reckon even I think about my own cricket, I've always been inclined to get down almost in crouch Mm. like the way Virat Kohli does it. For whatever reason, that's the way I've done it. And I reckon that must've been taught to me at a young age. Whereas over here, we know, and you know, the history of this I went through a little bit on the Daily Show about Alistair Cook, who just did that walking in with the bowler thing, which meant that he was often miles out of his crease, unwittingly, not on purpose. It was just part of his rhythm and routine. And I suppose that might be where it has to change. The walking in with the bowler bit of backing up mm. might not be possible anymore. And I and by the way, I you know, I was a bit I was a bit on the side of I don't think Charlie Dean's out on the night it happened because of the expected release point. I've softened on that now. Like I broadly agree with you that the more I've watched it, the more I've taken it in, you know, it's so subjective. You can arrive at any conclusion you want really. it's a. uh, But what I do think, and I actually think there'll be movement on this. I do think that in light of the fact that there is so much gray area around this, when the arm doesn't come up to the parallel Mm. or to the vertical, however you want to describe it, that the only- way in which the MCC are going to be able to make this more black and white, less ambiguity, less chaos, which could happen, is to just define it in a way that... And in a way, their statement says that. There's a line there that that repeats their earlier statements where it says, the easiest way for batters to not be dismissed is by watching the ball out of the hand. Yep. So... It might just be that they, in the next edition of the book, codify that rather than saying that in their narrative around the law, which has this expected point of release bit, which, yeah, I, I, I think has been shown over the weekend to be suitably confusing enough yeah. that we should probably part ways with it.
2: Well, I think it's pretty clear, but I think it, re- it, it relies on knowing what... The interpretation of the word "expected" means, but if the bowling arm never comes up, then there is no expected release point because it's never got to a point where the ball could be released. Yeah,
0: but, I, but you know, you know what I'm trying to say though, don't you? If you, if the rhythm of the move, the rhythm of the movement as a non-striker, yeah. you know what it feels like when the ball's being released without having to. I mean, you, you know what it feels like. Yeah. You do it all over and over and over again, and I just think that if you want players to watch the hand, if you're okay, I'll, I'll, I'll frame it up this way. If you want non-strikers to watch the hand tell them to watch the hand yeah, and they'll watch the hand sure. and you do that by saying ball being released I don't think we lose anything really yeah. I think it's an easy win it doesn't change anything practically and it'll mean that fewer non-strikers get run out and ultimately I think that's what we want we don't yeah. want non-strikers to get run out unless they're doing it for strategic reasons and taking off before the ball's yeah. bowled in which case game on but most of the time that isn't how this starts it happens because yeah. of lazy backing up and we can get rid of lazy backing up by yeah codifying how you get run out at the non-strikers end a bit more clearly.
2: Yeah, it's a lack of thinking about it and there were plenty of other players in that England yeah. team who didn't back up like that and there was a player who did and India were aware of it. They were watching it for quite some time yeah. um, and eventually they got sick of it. They said, well, she you know, she's, she keeps going, she keeps scoring runs, the game's getting tight. You know, They gave themselves an opportunity to bowl England out and at a point where it looked like that partnership might win the game with that risky backing up throughout, they said, well... We need to nip that in the bud. and, and i 'm fine with that yeah, tactically strategically it wasn 't deep Tea's decision it was, you, you can see Harman pre gesturing to her saying, "This is the ball, this is the one to do it they 've already discussed it, you know um, yeah. go for it on this delivery and and she does so um, so <clears throat> I think the the expected release is is in the laws basically so that you don't get a bowler doing a full mock bowling action with the arm coming yeah, all the way over and that's then why. windmilling and backhanding it onto the stumps when they've tricked a batter into thinking that the ball's been released but it actually hasn't been released. That's why the expected release point terminology is there. You know, it could, it could be more explicit. It could say when the arm reaches the vertical or whatever it is because the arm has to come over the top. But that is what that means. It means the point in the bowling action when the ball should come out of the hand under normal circumstances.
0: Yeah, that's right. That that windmilling you're talking about was well. The first time I really got stuck into this when the laws were changed in in 2017, as you're describing it, is true. That that's why they wanted expected point of release for that, so not to have a situation where bowlers were deceiving batters um, with letting the ball go. But on balance, I reckon that they might need to move to that interpretation because, yeah, I, I, I think there's there's just, a, just too much grey area and I think what it'll do at a recreational level where umpires aren't watching the expected mm. point of release, you can't expect a, a central umpire to be watching where the bowler's arm is, they're watching the front foot. So, uh, yeah, I, I suspect that that might be... Um, where we end up soon, but hey, time will tell. The other thing in all of this is that deep, D, the the old warning bullshit that we have to go through each time uh. when this happens and the, the misinformation around that. I think that's been mostly cleared up, by the way. Like my colleagues who I've been working with, know full well that warnings aren't in the laws and never were. I saw one cricketer, um, who who will remain nameless, saying, "Oh, they should bring back the warning law." I'm like, oh, for Christ's sake, yeah, but there never um, was one. But never, never was a warning law. It's just become a. Part of the discourse on mm. this. But yeah, the, the fact that Deep Dee has now said publicly that she warned Charlie Dean and Heather Knight bit back effusively, calling Deep Dee a liar for doing that. I have absolutely no comment on that, really, because how are we to know? But often the act of saying something. You know, the act of conveying a message doesn't always mean it's been received. Um, any, mm. There was a lot going on out there. I, I don't doubt the fact that there could have been some confusion about all of that. And I can easily imagine a scenario where there's some confusion around all of that, where mm. where all parties are telling the truth and there's nothing malicious about it. But yeah, it, mm. it, it's sad that it's had to have yet another 24 hours in the public domain being thrashed out because I thought we were nearly at the end of it yesterday.
2: Yeah, I, I would have much preferred... India, just to stick to their guns and say, well, we did it because we had a player who was taking liberties and we're allowed to do it, you know, they they were not repentant at all they were all smiles in, in the huddle because they knew that they had a player who was taking the piss whether deliberately or not um, and, and they were able to exact a price for that yeah. so yeah uh, the, if if the warnings thing got out of the discussion altogether that would be for the best um, another little MCC bit maybe you can enlighten me on this the Eaton and Harrow game is back thank God the oppression of the two richest schools in the country has been ended um, the, the <laughs> Boris Johnson factory is back on wheels So, what's going on with that?
0: So the MCC announced earlier this year that game was getting culled for next year. A percentage of the MCC membership petitioned the MCC for a special general meeting. They, They got enough signatures for that. The special general meeting was scheduled to be tonight, actually, when we're recording this. And last night, the MCC put out a statement that said the SGM's been called off because basically it's not in the best interest of the club to proceed with it, that they're entering into consultation with the group who want to have Eaton Harrow restored and as a consequence in the short term that game is back for next year so they've effectively gone back on where they were ahead of a further consultation and one of the many complicating factors is that Stephen Fry is about to take over as MCC president next week with Claire Connor finishing her term and he's on the record stridently saying the game shouldn't be played there so yeah that'll, that'll be interesting how that all plays out but yeah
1: Come seek the Royal Caribbean. ships Registry, Bahamas.
0: This is Felix White and you're listening to the final word pod with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.
2: All right, Adam, let us play a little game we like to call mm, Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge could really give it. Uh, a bit of a go that time because I'm sitting outdoors on a nice Vancouver afternoon, no one to disturb, no one to wake up. Nerd Pledge is the game that we play with people who listen to the show. Uh, This show is free to listen to. Can you believe that? I can't. What an incredible turn of events. And some people are nice enough to help us fund the show voluntarily by sending in contributions and instead of normal denominations they send in boutique numbers numbers that relate to cricket in some way and we have to figure out what the number means that's our job you've been doing a lot of nerd pledging without me the last few weeks adam Uh, anything you particularly enjoyed any particular stories you found chasing the numbers
0: oh gosh there would be jeff the the problem is is that um, my brain is mush at the moment so trying to recall something that i did even two days ago let alone two weeks ago is a High degree of difficulty. So all I'll add is that our final nerds, having gathered at, uh, well, obviously, the final word game a couple of weeks ago, there was another catch-up at Lord's and... Maybe both days of the weekend, certainly the Saturday, the England India one day, there were loads of final nerds in attendance, which was lovely. I couldn't get down, sadly, but I know that there were lots of people there. And I think it was the same during the Rachel Hayhoe Flint trophy final on Sunday, which we didn't refer to off the top, but I should note that the Northern Diamonds um, broke the streak. The Vipers were going for a three-peat, having uh, beat the Diamonds in both 2020 and 2021. And it was Lauren Winfield Hill who's had an amazing season, and she finished it with not only. A big half mm. century, um, but her wicket keeping was like donny esque. A couple of the takes she made really? um, yeah, like she is back on the rise big time. So she finished a competition with like 500 runs at like 100 near enough, and and, and um, and, and yeah, like I say, like there was one take, one stumping where she didn't kind of give with the ball, she, she just took the ball at the stumps like Donny used to do and whipped the bails off. Like it's like her gloves came towards the ball and towards the stumps in that one motion, that takes some doing. And she took a clutch catch earlier on off Lindsay Smith and made a late stumping to get Georgia Adams out. I was on commentary with Lydia as it all kind of um, it all kind of came to um, it came to the boil towards the end. And yeah, the Diamonds got over the line by about ten runs. No, it wasn't even that. It was the last ball finish. They needed six from the last ball. The Vipers and and got two, so they won. By two runs or whatever it works out to be, so yep. great to be there for that, and um, great to have a lot of final nerds in the crowd on both days at Lords.
2: Anyhow, have a Lauren Winfield, uh, maybe maybe <laughs> on the way back to England. Who knows? Um, the no pledge number for this week comes from Richard Jones. It is four dollars eighty nine in Australian buckaroos, dollary-doos, if you will. Uh, so, 489 is the number. We can interpret that any way we want. And look, we looked at a few things. Uh, we, we had a few a few options. We looked at some scores. We looked at some teams that might have made it, and uh, you know, we're always looking at the cap numbers and that sort of thing. But I found something that I didn't know about, and I probably should have known about. Okay. Um, because it, it, And I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Bruce Mitchell. If I asked you what country a player called Bruce Mitchell was from, you would certainly say Australia. Like surely Bruce is the most Australian name of of an earlier era and Mitchell is the most Australian name of the modern era. So Bruce Mitchell surely should be Australian.
0: Yeah, that's right. I'd go straight into John Cleese with Bruce, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. The the one rule, and I'm not even going to say it on the podcast, but yeah, I would immediately think... (laughs) (laughs) if you know you know Uh, Bruce okay so tell me about Bruce Mitchell Bruce I'd love to have a kid we're looking for a boy's name at the moment right because if it is a boy Mm -hmm. fuck we're in all sorts because there's a million great girls names and we've got many of them got no boy's name and I've said to Rach a couple of times Bruce would be strong be a tough name, Bruce Collins, <laughs> needless to say, having none of it.
2: Maybe if first name Robert, second name Bruce, as in Robert the Bruce, you know, who, <laughs> who took over at the end of Braveheart once Mel Gibson was out of the frame. Imagine Robert I didn't Robert tell her. The-
0: yeah, yeah. imagine <laughs> I got that over the line and didn't tell her the context. It's like, if I, like the first time around when I didn't, she knew who Dermy was, but she didn't know that like Dermy, Dermot, like she just didn't put, you know, I told her about Dermy, she'd met Dermy, I think. Although no, she yep. met Dermot later, but didn't quite process why I was trying to get that over the line and call her little mm. baby Dermot, <laughs> little little, <laughs> little baby Dermot, Dermot the Dermy. frog. Yeah. Anyway, anyway.
2: Um, Bruce, coming back out to of Bruce the womb with with a fend off. Uh, back to Bruce. So Bruce <laughs> Mitchell is not Australian. Bruce Mitchell's actually South African, which is very confusing oh, for me. Okay. With a test batting average of forty eight point eight eight. So I uh-huh. figure I can round that up to forty eight point nine. And Absolutely. Uh, this this. This floored me that I didn't know anything about Bruce Mitchell because uh, an extraordinary test career, uh, not an Australian, but here we go. From 1929 to 1949, Bruce Mitchell did not miss a test match that South Africa played in 20 years. How is it that we didn't know about Bruce Mitchell? An extraordinary bit. He scored 3,471 runs. That was the South African record until well after readmission it only got broken by a South African player in 1999 when Gary Kirsten went past it. So Bruce Mitchell was the top of the pops for most of the 20th century, um, which is a pretty remarkable feat. You know, Hansi, Daryl Cullen and Sean Pollock and, and others went past it from that 90s crop. There's still only 13 South Africans who've scored more test runs than Bruce Mitchell. even. I wonder
0: why. Day. Let's just interrogate this for a second, right? So... You and I have done a number of nerd pledge numbers and story time answers that have been around the, mm. the South African sides that I guess predate this, right? So like yep. 29 to 49, yeah, I guess we haven't done much of that, but we have from those matches that were played in the earlier, earlier part of the 20th century. I wonder why yeah. we've never kind of we've set, we- happened upon these two decades.
2: We've looked at players who played with Bruce Mitchell. We've looked a lot at uh, Hugh Tayfield on, on and off the field. Um, a lot of people had a look at him off the field as Matt well. Um, we've looked Shagger. Six
0: fucking wives. Yeah. Six wives. Had a lot of love to give. <laughs> Tayfield. big Off-spinners. I mean, I know off-spinners have big hands and, you know, probably like Prince Charles fingers. But mm-hmm. – oh, sorry, King Charles, I should say. But, yeah, I mean, I just don't – you know, I, I think off-spinners, I think, like, you know, soaking their fingers in piss to – to sort of calcify the, the spinning finger I don't think of being mad rooters. Mm. It just doesn't kind of tally. So Hugh Tayfield no. he's, a, he's a shapeshifter
2: Eric Rowan, one we've talked about quite a bit as well. But Bruce Mitchell, biographically, uh, I've found, also had massive hands, huge hands, okay. you know what they say, big big hands, big batting gloves. Mm. Um, he, w- he was a spinner initially in his teens and then became a batter uh, more so later and, and went to the top uh, of his craft with the bat rather than with the ball. Doctor's son from Johannesburg, played for Transvaal in 1927, did okay against the MCC touring team and got himself on the 1929 tour to England. And he, so he makes a ton against Yorkshire opening the batting, which he hadn't done much of before, and he ends up pretty much staying there for, for most of his career. Solid first couple of tours, one to England, one to Australia. Doesn't make hundreds, but he makes long 50s and South Africa aren't great with the bat at that time. So he's he's the kind of player who has to curb his instincts a bit, do a bit of the Mathali Raj and sort of hold things together and, and just bat for a long period of time. He has a good tour in between in between those when England visits South Africa, he plays well against them, makes his first 100 there. And then in 1935... He goes back to England uh, and he has a partnership with Eric Rowan of 330. It's the biggest South African partnership ever in England. It helps set up South Africa's first ever test match win in England. And that turns into a series win because they hold on to win that series 1-0. He makes another big ton in the fifth test match to make sure that they draw that match and, and hold on to the win for the series. So... Two centuries and a 50 in the tests, averaging 69. Nice, big hands. And also topped the first-class bowling average on that tour with his leggies, you know, just to chip in, just to show that he could. Um, Bruce Mitchell doing the job. He has a good scrap with Australia when they visit on what becomes Clary Grimmett's last uh, test tour for Australia after, well, before being cruelly dropped by Bradman before the the Ashes two are coming up. He beats up on England in 1938-39. He plays in the Timeless Test at Durban, the one that goes on for 10 days before they have to go on and and catch the boat. He makes a long innings of 89 in the third innings to set up that big lead, that 600-plus lead Mm. that England almost chase and don't quite get there. So England win the series 1-0, but um, Bruce Mitchell makes a lot of runs against them in that series. Then World War II intervenes. He comes back for two series after the war. He plays England at home and he plays England away and saves the best moment for last. 1947, he makes twin tonnes at the Oval. 120 and 189 not out. So I had a little look at uh, match aggregates for people who've batted twice. He's still in the top 25 all-time for runs in a test match with the 309 that makes that he, that he made in that test match. But here's a better stat. The... Only player who's ever made more runs in a test match without making a double hundred is Andy Flower. So he's still second all time for aggregate runs in a test without one of those innings being a double or a triple century.
0: Because Andy Flower gets the 199, which exactly. is which is the... Uh, we we had, a, we had a 199 today and I was about to reference Andy Flower. Keaton Jennings was out mm. to this like booming in-swinger from Jamie Overton for 199 and uh, I was rattling through sort of next door, who were the 199, Steve Waugh and Andy Flower were the only two that I could think of, but mm. nice to see it come around again with uh, with uh, with what you're doing here.
2: So Andy Flower, 142 and 199, not out when he's stranded. So he's almost disqualified from that club. If he got one more run, then Bruce Mitchell would still hold that record. Right. Um, so in that match, Mitchell makes the first ton while everybody else is terrible and South Africa give up a uh, deficit of 125 despite the Mitchell 100 so they get set 451 to chase when England declare and Bruce Mitchell nearly bloody gets them there he makes that 189 not out and they run out of time on 423 for 7 so they're 28 runs short running down 450 and this is in the 1940s he's got a company in Lindsay Tuckett who's hanging in there on, on 40 not out so they probably would have done it if they'd had another half hour or so to go on. But it's, it's not to be. He can't quite get there, but it's an extraordinary individual performance. Um, and then he has one more series at home in early 1949, goes well against England. And the Australians are due to visit the following summer and he gets left out. Uh, The selectors are worried that Lindwall and Miller will beat him up with a short ball because he's 40 years old. But uh, fury among the pundits in South Africa at the time. They were apoplectic. How dare you leave Bruce Mitchell out of the team? There was plenty left in him, they say. And it's still hung on to by some people in that part of the world as an injustice to rival any at the selection table. So... The extraordinary feats of Bruce Mitchell over the course of 20 years, Um, and and it interestingly came up with something else that links to another 489. Uh, Here is a line about Bruce Mitchell in, in something that was written about him in Wisden. Few quieter or more modest men have played test cricket, and Mitchell's perfect sportsmanship on and off the field at all times was living proof that success... Can be achieved without any compromise of behaviour. And so I thought that was very uh, notable that 489 then links very nicely to little Davey Warner, um, (laughs) of whom a different thing could be written uh, depending on one's point of view. After he came home from the Ashes in 2019 and people wanted him dropped, and he was supposedly a busted ass player who was no good anymore, he played the series against Pakistan two matches, two innings, two tons, one of them a triple, one of them not out, series average also 489 oh, uh, very so good. given that the pledge came in in AUD I thought it's more likely to be a little Davy number than a Bruce Mitchell number but I couldn't not tell the story of, briefly of Bruce Mitchell a player who we, we might look at in more depth on a story time at some point uh, but someone who I didn't know about and should have known about uh, South Africa's 20 year opener Bruce Mitchell
0: Bruce Mitchell and, and Dave Warner, connected forever. I like it. Uh, and speaking of the Wisdom Almanac, I wrote the uh, the Almanac piece around Warner's triple ton and the, the series against Pakistan. <laughs> I don't remember what I wrote about it, but I know it took me a long time to pull it together, probably about five days after deadline, as is the way with all pieces in the Wisdom Almanac when Lawrence Booth is chasing us in January saying, where the fuck is... Are your articles and people like you and I are like <laughs> well, I promise we're going to file them we love the book you're coming on yep. the podcast to talk about the book in a couple of months we'll get there we promise and we do Yep. and we do it all comes yeah. together in I the think end
2: it's because we we really care you know when it's you're true. writing a wisdom piece you know that it will be sitting there on the page for someone to come across in 50 or 60 or 80 years time and which well, is what you so exactly what you've, do- you really well, exactly what
0: you've done part. there right it, it, what you've done there by going back and quoting from yeah, you know, Brucey's was it his obituary mm. in Wisdom that you went you went to? I assume it was that, if there was a a, a longer form article about him. You know, yeah, that, that's right. I know that what I wrote about Warner and his three hundred and thirty five at Adelaide in, in two thousand and nineteen doesn't mean an awful lot now, but probably will mean quite a bit in fifty years' time when people go back mm. and want to sort of learn more about how that happened. That that will be a source they probably, hopefully, still go to.
2: Mm. Yeah, when, when the world is underwater and there's some kind of Kevin Costner minor character getting around <laughs> in a rowboat with a full set of wisdoms, you know, re- reading reading from them in 50 years' time, um, if you want to send us a Nerd Pledge, you can. You can help us keep this show going. You go to patroncom slash the final word. You send us your number. You help the show, you get on the show and then you get to get on the uh, the chat page in there and see all of the, the fun things and, and extras that happen for patron subscribers behind the scenes. So send us a nerd pledge if you're so inclined.
0: Yeah, do it. When you were away, Jeff, we noted that we dropped behind Jimmy again, which isn't ideal because Jimmy keeps taking wickets and, you know, the way this goes at the end of a month when we lose a few patrons because their credit cards change and, and that kind of thing. So we'd love to nudge ahead of Anderson again if that's at all possible. So be part of that, be part of our as you say, the Discord community, which is a truly beautiful thing. I liked when people were um, who'd been to the game a fortnight ago were saying how the nicest corner of the internet, as we describe the Discord channel, really does become the nicest corner of the world when you're in a room full of other um, final word listeners. It's a pretty special thing. So you too can be part of that. And uh, all you need to do is go to patreon.com forward slash the final word, send in a pledge. And we have got So many numbers to consider in the next few weeks between now and when the T20 World Cup starts uh, on the 15th of October.
2: The county championship, Adam, the last round. You mentioned Surrey's win. The last round's about to start, but they've already got the title in the bag. The Strauss recommendations, uh, which may be referred back to in years to come, like the Argus Review um, (laughs) and and other... uh, The the Kayam report, the Justice Kayam report. uh, (laughs) Yeah. match fixing in in Pakistan. The Strauss recommendations may go down in in fame or infamy depending how people uh, take them in. Uh, I'm sure the the county cricket devotees will not like the recommendation of uh, reducing the championship to 10 matches, uh, pulling the blast down to 10 matches from 14 Uh, but there is this recommendation for a first class festival in August as well which has been a, a sore point for a lot of people following the championship that they haven't had County cricket in August. Uh, what do you make of the, the slew of things across the board?
0: Well, the first thing to say is that this is, like, a big deal. This isn't just another review. This isn't just kind of another... Um a bit of tweaking around the margins. This will, if voted in, and remembering that 15 of the 18 counties will need to support the most contentious measures for them to, to get up, and and remembering that most of it isn't controversial, sort of, I don't know, more Lions tours, and, you know, whether they use the Kookaburra ball for some of the county season, like, you know, whatever. Fans aren't going to be exercised over, over that kind of thing. It, it really does boil down to whether the championship being reduced to 10 rounds down from 14, remembering it was 16 until four or five years ago. So it's quite a dramatic cut when you view it in those terms, whether that is going to send county cricket on a path towards having fewer clubs full stop. Now, the reason that is, that, that, that conclusion's jumped to, is that there would be, under this model, a Division 1 of six teams, so everyone would play each other twice, thus 10 rounds, and there would be two Division two. so I assume like a Division 2 A, B, maybe North and South or something like that, and there'd only be one team getting promoted each season. So the winner of Division 2 A would play the winner of Division 2 B in like a... I guess it's like oh, a, the, the, the playoff situation. Yeah, like the playoff championship, we have to go to the Premier League. You know, the most um, what do they call it? The most lucrative game of football um, played each year because going up to the Premier League means so much, and only one team would come down. And due to the fact that the counties were willing to play ball with the hundred, remembering they were paid off, they got a considerable amount of money. I think it was one point three million quid as a dividend or yield for being supportive of, of the hundred back when this had to get a similar kind of majority in 2019, 18, 19. Yeah, I think there is a reasonably well-founded fear that this is thin edge of the wedge stuff, that it'll be this and mm-hmm. it'll be something else. And before you know it, we'll have you know just six teams who count or, or maybe eight or 10 or whatever it is, but it'll lead towards a reduction in the counties. And that's not helped by the fact that In this scenario, the Blast would go from seven home games to five home games, and the smaller counties who might be at risk of losing first-class status make the majority of their money each year from their Blast games. So these two things feel like they're interlinked. The other bits and bobs that are here, for example, playing the Royal London 50 Over Cup in April, look, I wouldn't play it as a knockout tournament, or if I was going to do it that way, I'd have sort of maybe groups of three or four to guarantee a minimum number of games for each club because they're going to include the minor counties in this. That The suggestion is six minor counties will be involved. And, you know, if you're scheduled to play on the 2nd of April and you lose, then you may not play a game until the championship starts in May. And that's a pretty weird thing to happen. But I'm not really worried about 50 over cricket being moved into April. In fact, I support that. I've written arguing that before because it feels like white ball cricket – makes sense in the cold more than red ball cricket where you're kind of standing still with three slips in a gully um, and it's two degrees outside. You know, April doesn't always feel like the right month for for that, whereas in in white ball cricket, at least you're running around and it's a more dynamic form of the game. And it does give... Mm in that scenario, um, the 50 over cup, greater prominence where it's been sort of hidden behind the hundred in the last couple of years, well and truly off Broadway at the outgrounds with a real problem with player availability and that kind of thing between the hundred and the England test squad, who until this year um, have been playing test cricket in the month of August. So the real quiz, if you like, is will the clubs vote and support a reduction in the championship uh, to 10 teams? Now, I'm sort of mindful that There is a school of thought that the players will just be happy with this because, well, less cricket means less work. That's pretty reductive, but you know what I'm trying to say, right? Like, if you're asked to do something 14 times a year or 10 times a year for effectively the same money, that 10's more attractive. But, like, I've been listening to former cricketers talk about this as well. I've been working quite a bit with Nick Knight in the last week. He played, you know, the better part of two decades with Warwickshire and England, and he was a test cricketer and and all the rest of it. And he, he explained it really well from how he sees all of this. He's like, well, when I was a youngster coming through, I couldn't get enough county cricket. You know, it was 16 games. I would have played 26 games. All I wanted to do was play, play, play. As I got older, I realised that was no longer to my advantage. That was, it was counterproductive, having to keep playing county cricket when when I needed more time to recuperate. I needed more time to practise and I would have been quite happy by the end of my career with it being a 10-game competition, for example. So you're hearing that from former players. Um, you're hearing the PCA... Uh, being supportive of a a reduction in the days that are played each year in England. But you offset that against the sense that the counties and the clubs and the structure and the organisations mean more than that, that it isn't just about the 15 or 20 or 25 players who are listed to be uh, part of the team each year. It's about the thousands of members. It's about the, the decades and decades and centuries indeed in some cases or not centuries but more than 100 years of history that these clubs have and and that the competition has and if you eat away at the integrity of it in this way that I mean at what cost like Jonathan Lou wrote a piece in the Guardian today where he went pretty hard like there's this whole idea that the high performance review there's a slogan in there about what it takes to win it's like an acronym that they use in this report and his point through the pieces well yeah of course everyone wants England to win and when England don't do well as they didn't do well in Australia last year it, it it's paused for introspection and, and and for a lot of hand-wringing. but is this is fundamentally the success of the England men's team sufficiently important to offset this whole other thing which exists independently of the England men's team of course it supplies players to it but that's the fundamental contradiction. That, you know, you are are trying to serve two distinctly separate causes. County cricket and how that's ticking over and the hundreds of of professional cricketers in England. That's one thing. And the maybe 30 or 40 who get to represent England in a given year is actually a different thing. And when you ignore the first to only serve the second, I say again, at what cost? It's a reasonable question.
2: Yeah. And and what you're saying about uh, the players and the workload, I mean, this is nothing new. You go back to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, all of those stories that we hear from the the players of that era who are still knocking around in media circles, uh, talking about the ridiculous situations where they'd play a championship game for four mm. days, hop in the car, drive up to the other end of the country, play a one day game, drive back down to the other end of the country, you know, playing all of these different leagues and so on. But in terms of the workload, it, it's a matter of what your position of advantage is. If you're an established player, as like Nick Knight said, towards the end or the later part of his career, he'd want to play less because he's an established player who doesn't need to play more. If you're a player trying to crack a county first 11 or whatever it is, more games are better because it gives you an opportunity to come in and play. You might come in and play when someone else is rested or injured. The more matches there are, the more likely it is that you'll get an opportunity. And if you get that opportunity, you might be able to make the most of it. You've got more mm time to make your case to be a regular part of a first team or to push for England selection if you're trying to do that for the first time, those kinds of things. So it makes a big difference as to where the player is on the ladder of opportunity, if you will, in terms of how much like more is better if you're trying to get into a team.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. So there's that, even in that, when, when trying to speak for players, there's complexity to that too. So yeah, it's an impossible balancing act. Like I think that what they've tried to do with this month of August festival, so they provided a couple of examples how it might work, a London Cup, which we've seen when women's 50 over cricket where the counties, it might be say Surrey, Middlesex, I think they cited Essex and Kent, which of course aren't London, but you know, you know, I'm trying to say like in that mm-hmm. southeastern corner of the country, they could play against each other for a, you know, a, a trophy or they could play, there was um, a Rose's series where there might be three Roses Mm. games played in consecutive weeks. But they will be tantamount to exhibition games. They'll have first-class status, so thus they will count to records and history and the game, you know, we we know how important that is to the game, but it will be at the time of year when there is bulk unavailability. Now, I actually don't Mm. think that's a problem. Bulk unavailability has always been, unfortunately, part of the – the nature of domestic cricket, we see it in Australia when there's when the Test team or the Test squad's been chosen, and you see that the difference in in Shield teams through that stretch of time, where players are getting opportunities that certainly wouldn't, you know, like say Trent Copeland, who he might be a bad example, but you'll know where I'm getting to when I make this point. If Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood and Lyon are available, Trent Copeland yep. probably isn't playing when they're off on Test duty. He's the most important bowler New South Wales have, so it's right. a, it's a question of depth, and you know, if it were me. I just play the championship through August. I just like, okay, well, yeah, okay, it's 14 games and thus the workload remains heavy, but probably not for the players who they're worried about. Those who are in the what it takes to win slipstream, those who are already with England or probably off playing in the 100, which clashes in August. I don't see a huge amount lost in just keeping those four games as championship. You know, I I probably would reduce the Blast from 14 to 10 games because the Blast is an unwieldy competition, even worse than the Big Bash in that sense. No one can really follow what's going on from day to day. They play every second day. It's overwhelming. Much of it's not on television because of the fact that there's just simply too much of it. And it sometimes can lose its narrative a little bit. So back to five games and try and concentrate the crowd um, from seven to five in those five nights. I I mean, it, it might cost some clubs some money in the margins, I suppose, but they'd have fewer overheads by hosting games only five times rather than seven as well. So I I, I can come at that. I can come at the April bit. But yeah, the reduction from 14 to 10, whilst I absolutely understand what they're trying to do and the workload they're trying to reduce on players who they want to play for England, I don't think it matters an awful lot. I just don't think those guys are playing in August anyway. They're in the 100. They're, they're, They're already in the system somewhere else. And... And there will be some clubs who are ra- are ravaged, right? So Surrey are a great example of this. I think they had 12 players out in the 100. And I think you can throw a few on top of that with Test Duty, Folks, Pope, others. So they were turning out teams in the Royal London Cup this year, which were decidedly second team. But that's the cost of doing business, that you will have a weakened side for a few weeks when the hundred's running. I think that's probably okay. And maybe I'm being too simplistic. And remembering that this is... Also, about that divisional problem I referred to before for some clubs who feel like they'll never make Division One. At least now, with two up, two down, 10 teams up top, 8 teams in Division Two, you can see a way out. I mean, the fact that Gloucestershire played in Division yeah. One this year, Northants will stay in Division One this year. They're considered unfashionable Division Two counties. They both got there. They came first and second right. and got their promotion and they earned it. Now, you can top your league and still not go up. It's a much harder ladder to climb than it ever has been before. And yeah, that that could lead to or easily end up being a situation where those top handful of clubs are so entrenched and so ingrained in, in, in Division 1 that they just become um, the destination club for any decent player. Why would you want to play in a Division 2 side when you can engineer it that you can follow a county that's almost always in Division 1 with a bit more cash? I'm not sure that's healthy either. I think that, mm. that, that, that might also hasten the end of the 18-team competition and I, and I really wouldn't like to see that.
2: Well, you go from having a 25% chance of going up at the start of a season to uh what would it be eight eight and a half percent chance of going yeah, up you know exactly. one team out of 12 versus two teams out of eight that's a massive difference and uh, if, if they're trying to cut down the number of games then it seems counterintuitive to then say let's make up some other competition to have in august for something else Like why, why not just play the competition that you've already got and and give that the stage give that the limelight it's not like every county has an 11 that plays they need to have a squad of players they need to have backups and if I can uh, tangentially bring this back to Geelong's grand final for a minute Chris Scott the coach spoke about this really well after that game saying that you know all year he wasn't he was never thinking we've got 22 or 23 players who are the players who will turn out in the first team every week he was saying this is a it's an entire squad approach you've got to have 30 35 players yeah you know with you, you might have three or four rookies or whatever who are development players who aren't ready yet but you've got to have 30 plus players who are ready to play and who who know how to do that job at that top level and the only way that you develop that is by giving them opportunities rotating your squads giving them a sure. the chance to play and having enough games for them to play in because if you had a 10 match AFL season, then you wouldn't be able to structure a squad that way. You wouldn't be able to give players opportunity whereas across a 22-match season you do. Yeah,
0: and weather's a factor here in in a way that it just isn't in Australia with the Shield. I mean, I'm yeah. not saying that Shield games don't get rained out, but you know a decent number of days, more days here get rained out compared to playing in Australia and, and, and games get compromised by losing a day and suddenly it's a three-day affair and and all the rest of it. So yeah, that, that's a consideration here as well. And look, like, I, I know that for some, they simply see this through the prism of the 100 is coming to kill county cricket. And I'll never be able to decouple that. To them, because of the 100, this is happening. Well, it, it's kind of not because of the 100. It's an acknowledgement that the world around us is evolving rapidly. I mean, the fact of the matter is the hundred will probably end up getting privatized at some point it will become another league that's effectively owned by the bcci or the ipl owners that that is a very likely scenario the ipl owners weren't in england watching the hundred for a holiday they are wanting to see the pig fattened so that they can get in on the act they want to they want to have some of this right and i and i get it from their commercial perspective and we've spoken at great length on this podcast about the scheduling challenges and the I would say existential threat to test cricket beyond this future tour program uh, and, and World Test Championship cycle, certainly if they get rid of the WTC, and I, I think they probably will at some point, if these leagues become as omnipresent as we fear and suspect they almost certainly will. So that is the bigger picture that the ECB are thinking about when drafting this report, Andrew Strauss specifically. And he said as much. It's about players who will have their head turned and go go elsewhere and not play red, red ball cricket at all the 100 is part of that, but it isn't like this is a report that's been drummed up to justify the 100. Yeah. Th- those, th- those two things aren't quite compatible. And the the outpouring of emotion, grief, whatever you want to call it, from those who are really close to the flame, they are like if you're drawing a sort of a, a Venn diagram, it's a circle between that group of the cricketing community and those who have been running the Opposed 100 Twitter accounts and the hashtags and and all the rest of it. And that's the fault of the ECB who botched the selling of the 100 to start with. I mean, uh, and, and we've had those conversations on this show over many years as well, Jeff, so I don't propose to go over all of that. But yeah, it is intertwined with the 100. I'm not saying it's completely unrelated, but yeah, there, there is a much, much bigger realignment going on in global cricket And that's the slipstream this fits into. It's not just about the 100. And I hope that people can understand that. Where club members get a chance to vote, there's a a special general meeting taking place at Lancashire tonight on this very topic. And when Will was on the podcast in your absence a couple of weeks ago, co-hosting, we spoke about like so much power resides in the hands of these club chairmen now. You know, how much scrutiny have they been under, these club chairmen? And, you know, we reflected on one. He's just like a straight-up reply guy on Twitter he will dictate terms for his entire club membership. Like that's a, this is big stuff. It, it isn't a small thing at all. I, I I, don't want people to think anything other than that. This, this could change the entire landscape of English cricket at a crucial juncture.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it, it's not all about the hundred. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, don't particularly love the format or anything about the way they went about it but it is a three-week competition that shouldn't be enough to derail the entire existence of the the rest of English cricket it's not the only factor at play there are a lot of things at play here so
0: what do you think about like what I said at the start about like the idea that county cricket clubs exist in their own right independently of the England team like that's contested space like and the more I think about it the more I kind of accept that perspective does that sound crazy like that I'm how I'm framing it up that it needn't all be about the success or otherwise of the test team or or, or is that no. just naive
2: well I, I, the test team comes along after all of those clubs already exist you know they're not they don't they're not born to be feeder organizations for the national team in the same way as even in English women's cricket it is different there is much more of a, a focus on a, being a production line to provide players nationally that's much less the case in the much broader canvas of men's county cricket so that is something that has to be factored in that there are there are county members who are members of their county first and foremost and yes they'll follow england games and all of the rest of it but what happens locally is what matters to them
0: yeah yeah, I think that's true. Just to shift gears, I know we're kind of doing quite big gear shifts today on the show, jumping from one thing to the next. Uh, the T20 World Cup's around the corner, which I'm thoroughly not ready for. Um, we'll, I'll be in Australia. Oh, this is the,
2: the the warm-up stuff, if you will, England in Pakistan and, and Australia in India. This has been fun. The, the England-Pakistan thing has been a ding-dong. So England mm. with a run chase in the first game with Alex Hales making a 50 on his comeback um, – big news on its own there. Then you've got Barbara Azam and Muhammad Rizwan making 200 without loss yes. to run down a huge total. three for none.
0: And that was after Moeen hit like five sixes in the last two overs or something in like this majestic yeah. half century. And England have racked up 200 like record score there or something like that. And then Pakistan knock it off, none down.
2: And then England go even bigger, 221 they make, and Pakistan don't get that one. And then Pakistan hold off England uh, having made only 166, you know, given the context of the previous couple of matches. Uh, they hold them off by a couple of runs, England all out for 163. Uh, it's It's been fun stuff. Ben Duckett in there, uh, you, the Northants. Player who uh, who's who's got himself back into that sort of England setup, and he's eyeing off spots there. So, it's it's been a, a pretty fun time watching that.
0: I like how you still think of Ben Duckett as a north Hans player, despite the he's fact always that He north left,
2: he left there team. about six years ago. Yeah, from that 2015 tour game. Uh, yeah, he's, he's north hands for
0: life. He's back in uh, Harry Brooks. A real story. I mean, um, I've only caught the highlights of these games. I've not been able to watch them in full. But he hit 81 not out off 35 balls in in uh, in that. 200 plus score they they whacked the other day and you know Will Jacks made his international debut in this series and you know it won't be long before he's a three format England player almost certainly the same will be said of Brooke who made his test debut at the Oval a couple of weeks ago and now he's sort of ensconced inside that England white ball setup and on the other side of it you've got Pakistan who are very reliant on Rizwan and Barber at the top of the list but haven't been as consistent down the order. We saw last year, it was Asif Ali, wasn't it? Who was able to win a couple of games really late when chasing in the World Cup in the UAE. But out of the two sides, my sense is that England are better balanced. And and of course, there's the, the wider lens too. the England are back in Pakistan. I mean, this is the first of two tours in the back end of uh, 2022, having pulled out last year on most spurious grounds. And did themselves a lot of damage there um, from a sort of good global cricketing citizen perspective kind of thing. But yeah, England, it sounds like they're having a a whale of a time as we did when we were there earlier this year Jeff.
2: And uh, Australia in India having a bit of fun over there as well the Cameron Green at the top of the order thing this is fun yeah. because David Warner's not there so they've asked Green to open. He's just battered in such a Cameron Green way he basically just stands up tall and hits straight down the ground. He's made big scores in two of the three games so far and very fast scores and I love it how off the back of two scores people are saying well he's got to be in the World Cup squad, got to be in the World Cup squad, got to find a way to, to squeeze him in, to disguise him as someone else uh, and all of the rest of it, it doesn't take much to get a bandwagon going.
0: Well, but they're probably right, though. I mean, he's hit 61 mm-hmm. from 30 and 52 from 21. I mean, he, they're probably right. And I think um, when when asked about this, I don't know who was up doing media the other day, but I saw a quote from one of the senior Australians over there saying that they wouldn't it wouldn't bother them if he ended up in the squad somehow. Of course, that would require an injury at this stage because Australia have mm. submitted their 15. But, yeah, I mean, they've got... Tim David in there unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Well, I say unexpectedly, like it was touch and go as to whether they'd be able to sort of draft him in. He made 54 from 27 in the third game. Meanwhile, Matthew Wade, it just keeps doing it. They chased down... Better and better. Yeah, they chased down 208 in the first fixture and Wade made 45 not out from 21 as the finisher. And he did the same in the eight-over game that followed. So the first game, Australia won chasing big. I think it was the biggest ever chase... In India in a T20 international, something like that, and then the second game was rain affected, reduced to an eight over smash, and Wade still had time to make forty three from twenty balls in a losing effort. You know, the usual suspects for India have been dominating: Hardik Pandya, Rohit Sharma, uh, Suryakumar Yadav, Virat Kohli. They've all made scores through this series, um, and yeah, in the third game it was yeah Green's um, twenty one ball half century and and David's twenty seven ball fifty four in a losing effort. But you know, like I can I, I think the If they were picking the team today or picking the 15 today, Green's surely there. It's just a product of circumstance that he hadn't played a T20 international until about a week ago.
2: Mm. And and you know you you would love to see things you'd love to see would be Singapore's own Tim David rocking up in a World Cup in in Australian colours and you know the the kind of power that he's got the way that you know Matthew Wade did the cap presentation and spoke really well and uh, I've, I've got to say Matthew Wade I've really warmed to Matthew Wade he was the at the forefront of the ugly Australian thing in the Darren Lehman era um, and he's he's become a a much more rounded and considered citizen of the Australian team in, in the time since as well as being very consistent in that T20 format where it is hard to be consistent. But as a finisher, he's been putting in the performances uh, time and again and, and he's done it at the top of the order when asked to fill in up there as well. So, yeah, it'll be curious to see the developments between now and then and, and if there if there are any hamstring tweaks in the Australian World Cup squad.
0: <laughs> Jeff also got the start of the Australian domestic season over the weekend with the 50-over Cup. There's something quite quaint about the 50-over Cup in Australia. i got to say, I watched some highlights of one of these games and it felt like I was sort of in a time machine back to a, a friendlier era, kind of, you know, you your pre-T20 world where, you know, there might only be a few hundred people at these games of cricket, but there's certainly some big names uh, out there playing in the pyjamas. And of course it's sort of starting before the end of the England season, which is always a little bit jarring, but such as it must be with scheduling as it is at the moment and the World Cup on the horizon. So Victoria got off to a a pretty good start at the Junction Oval against New South Wales. Will Pekofsky making runs made... 64, Marcus Harris as well, and Todd Murphy, who they have huge raps on. Um, he was on that Sri Lankan tour that uh, that we went to back in July. He took two for 29 from 10, but they lost the second game against WA, um, which was later in the weekend at the Junction Oval. Hanscom made runs, but AJ tying the wickets and uh, Josh Ryan Phillippe making a 96-ball 100. Darcy Short, who we don't talk about <laughs> too much these days, uh, made 90. So, Victoria... One from two, and um, yeah, good to have the 50-over the stuff back.
2: Yep, and the uh, South Australians, the mighty South Australians, got a, a win for Barat against Queensland as well. And the WNCL has started up. This is the first time that they've got an expanded competition for, this is the women's 50-over domestic yep. comp, so they're doing a full... It's not exactly home and away. They've got each team playing each other team twice, but both of the games are happening in the same place across that... Uh, across that schedule, so yeah. if say New South Wales is playing Queensland, both of them will be in Queensland or wherever it is that you know a particular team ends up. So like it, like, it, like two a game like, Yeah, I was going to say, is it like two yeah. games on
0: the same weekend kind of thing?
2: Yeah, it's within within about three days of one another. So maybe it'll alternate year on year, and you know. Queensland will play in New South. New South Wales will play in Queensland this year, and vice versa the following year. I'm not sure exactly what the future plan for all of that is. Um, but most notable in that was the the tie between Victoria and South Australia, which was good fun. A Duckworth Lewis tie after the South Australians made 200 for nine, and then Victoria had a, a target of 119 from 23 overs. They were 118 for five. At the final belt, Elise Perry made a duck. Sophie Molyneux, a half century. So starting things off in a fun way for the WNCL this year. Meg Lanning's not in it. She's officially pulled out of the Big Bash as well, which we expected. A bit of conjecture around whether uh, this is it. It might be all over. She might never come back. I don't think that's true. I think I think that's a news story that'll get some clicks, but I'd, I'd be very surprised if she's not back at some stage. It's, it's too good a career and too lucrative a career at this stage to give it away at the age of 30.
0: I think that's that's a good point about that it's too good and lucrative a career. But, yeah, it, it, this is – um yeah, it's, it's turning into a substantial breakaway from the game. I don't think we should sort of underestimate how big a deal it is that she's missing the Big Bash. I'm, I'm mindful that she was the, the captain that led Australia to Commonwealth Games Gold like five minutes ago. It doesn't feel like the break's been long, but – You know how it is these days, Jeff, like the the treadmill is so quick in international cricket and there are so many opportunities to play. But yeah, this feels like a big thing that she's missing the entirety of the of the women's big bash league, of course, didn't play in the hundred this year. So, yeah, I, I certainly hope you're right that she's back pretty soon, but she's done a lot. I mean, there isn't a lot of, you know, like we spoke last week about Rachel Haynes about picking her moment to retire because she's kind of done everything multiple times. Well, that's even more the Mm. case for Lanning, who's been winning World Cups since she was a teenager across the formats. And when you are clearly the best team in the world uh, and when there's, well, I suppose winning a World Cup in India and we started the show discussing the Indian women's team and they're already now building towards that World Cup on home soil next time around. Be, that, that'll, be a, that'll be a big thing if Australia can win over there and defend their title in India in 2025, presumably under Lanning's captaincy. But other than that, and I guess there is a World Cup in the 20-over format in, in February, March, but, I mean, Australia will win that with a leg in the air, won't they? I mean, it's unlikely they'll lose a game. In fact, they won't lose a game. So I'd be very surprised if they lost a game, I should say. Yeah, T20 can be a bit of a crapshoot sometimes, but you know what I mean. They are still way ahead of the pack. So... Yep. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, if you're Meg Lanning, like, what's getting you out of bed at the moment for, from a cricketing perspective? I'm not sure what that is. Well, other, uh, other than, uh, other than the ongoing pursuit of excellence, which I don't want to diminish that. Like, there is something about professional sports people who they always want to better themselves. But from a team perspective and a leadership perspective, like, she really has done it all so many times.
2: But even if it's a case where she skips that World Cup, maybe she's played a lot of T20 World Cups and maybe that's not the thing. Maybe she's not back in time to be match fit and ready for that. Uh, she could still sit that out and, and come back. She she could come back in a year's time. I mean, she missed True. almost a year with that shoulder injury and, yep. uh, and came back just about as good as she was. Uh, and also giving up on the game just before the women's IPL starts to become part of the calendar <laughs> as well. I, I'd be very surprised if... A, a player with a lot left in the tank would, would want to give that away without having a shot at the WIPL. And the not just the money you would get paid for doing it initially, but the profile in India, the job opportunities that come after that, the, the media profile, all of the rest mm. of it, you know, that's that's a lot to be deciding that you're too tired to, to come at. So I, I would be surprised, uh, but I suppose you never know with these kind of things.
0: Yeah, and, and she deserves to get rich out of the IPL. Meg Lanning, I mean, yeah, I know she's very wealthy. Well, I say she's very wealthy. Why should I assume anything? But she's made plenty of money out of cricket in the last few years since that. Maybe,
2: t- maybe she's blown it all on the pokies. We don't know. <laughs> we, we don't know which, how wise her investment strategy has been. I, also, a note for Cricket Australia, who uh, were absolutely stunned to the world, shocked us all by announcing Shelley Nitschke will be appointed as the coach of the Australian women's national team after being in the job for months. Uh, the, the old worldwide search that then appointed the person in the job. They love that. They love that. They just get better and better at it.
0: Imagine the uh, yeah the, 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 the consultants, they always bring in the sort of um, mm-hmm. headhunting HR specialists who get paid all these consultancy fees. I'm not sure if that was the case this time, but certainly in the sort of corporate gigs, they, they, they um, yeah, and as you've pointed out many times, Jeff, when they find the global search leads them to the next office. Funny that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep, leads them to whoever they shared the lift up to the third floor with that morning. Um, remarkable, remarkable stuff.
0: Uh, Jeff, uh, I'll level with you. I've got to go to bed. We should probably stop this podcast now. It's been fun, but I am knackered.
2: Yep. I think we've done what we needed to do. We we achieved what we came here to achieve. We've appointed the right person to the position who we knew was going to be appointed all along. This has been The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Cullen. So uh, thanks to everyone for listening in for another week. We'll have story time coming up on the weekend. We'll be back to it two shows a week for a little bit before we get into the T20 World Cup and the Daily Show comes back there as we uh, traipse from one end of Australia to the other following the cricket around. So it'll be a tiny bit quieter on the feed for a little while. Uh, Even the can't stop, won't stop has to settle to a dull roar on occasion.
0: Well, it won't settle down too much when you think about it. We've got to do a big revisit special for the uh, story time, which I can't do this week, but we can do next week. And um, yes, we've still got a couple of those archive episodes that drop out as well. The, the EPS, the kind of uh, the lost final word uh, season that, that we made and kind of didn't quite make it to the various platforms that we've migrated to across the different moves in the last two or three years. So they'll be in the feed if you're interested in hearing my more sort of crash accent. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, Jeff, but when you listen to podcasts, it's more noticeable with me than you, but my accent has changed quite a bit. Not like. Kylie it, Minogue. Yeah, it has. Not Kylie yeah. Minogue style, but I seem yeah. to have lost the, the harshness of my A's, that sort of Melbourne A uh-huh. thing. Living over yep. here, that's the bit I've lost. I have, again, I haven't gone Kylie Minogue, but it is different. Huh. You'll notice it. Yeah. Now I've told I've, you.
2: I've definitely found that having been in North America the last couple of months, I'm, I'm leaning on the R a lot more just so that people can understand what I'm saying. You, you <laughs> have to ask for a, a water because if you say a water, <laughs> they go, what's that? You know, uh, you got any ice? Any ice? <laughs> any what? Any ice? Um, any any ace? You know you have to you have to adjust sometimes adapt to your conditions and and that's what that's what we've always been told about cricketers touring the world you've got to adapt to the conditions that you're in and that's the challenge uh, as it is the challenge with podcasting as well so that's it from us for another week the final word is edited by Dave Collins it's hosted by us and it's listened to by you hop on the patreon if you want to have a look at what we're doing on there and uh, other than that we'll see you on the weekend. Ta-da. I had to go about it
1: right. I can find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you I had to fail